This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 179. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. Today, I sat down with Dylan Seglio, the co-founder and CEO of Chubby Snacks. Chubby Snacks is modernizing the classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Packed with superfood ingredients, over 9 grams of protein, and less than 3 grams of sugar, Chubby Snacks has perfected the balance between kids' taste buds and parents' health standards. In this episode, Dylan shares his story from growing up in New Jersey as a middle child to working as a pizza delivery driver, to struggling with his grades in school, to starting an apparel company that gave back to the homeless, to building a marketing automation agency, and then launching Chubby Snacks in June 2020. We talk about his feelings of accomplishment after graduating from USC, the challenges he had finding a co-manufacturer for Chubby, and why he decided to start making the sandwiches in-house and 15x production with a fully automated machine. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Dylan, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Chubby Snacks. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And so we just were talking, we both lived in Marina Del Rey, probably in the same exact building, maybe two floors away from each other in 2019. Hilarious. Yeah, too crazy, honestly. I mean, just kind of shows how small this world is, really. It really is. And you're still in Marina Del Rey. Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? Yep. Still living in Marina. I've been in Los Angeles for about almost 12 years now. I grew up in New Jersey, a small city called Bayonne, right next door to Jersey City, which is a lot more familiar to most people, but ultimately just a stone's throw away from New York City. What was childhood like? You know, tell us about your siblings, your parents, paint the picture for us, what it was like. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'll start with my dad was in the military, the Navy for a good portion of his like 20s, worked on a nuclear submarine and then ended up working in kind of a blue collar worker at a power plant in the New Jersey area. And then my mom was a personal trainer and spin instructor as a kid. So I, you know, got to see firsthand just like what it meant to just, you know, kind of be in, you know, best shape of your life at a very early age. And I thank my mom a lot for instilling very healthy habits for me. I'm a middle child. My sister is the youngest. She's 30. We're all two and a half years apart. Sorry. Uh, And my brother is 35. All right. So you were the middle. You were a sandwich. How funny is that? You were the middle of this sibling sandwich. So what were you into as a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, what kind of kid were you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was an athlete growing up. I played every sport you could probably imagine. I literally live, breathe all sports. And thankfully, my parents put me in a lot of different things, which was great from just like, you know, social perspective too. I, I met a lot of kids that were, you know, also other types of athletes that, you know, just ultimately got along with. It was very uncomfortable at first, just going into all these different sports in different cities and playing, but it ultimately, you know, kind of created this competitive mindset for me, which I think I carry very closely to me at this point in my life. But yeah, where I grew up in Bayonne, Jersey City area, it's very blue collar-esque. I actually talk about this a lot that I could walk to pretty much any street corner in my city and there's a pizza shop or a bodega. And that was my first introduction to more or less entrepreneurship. I didn't know what entrepreneurship really stood for and what entrepreneurs really were, but I knew what small business owners were. And so at a very young age, I was just exposed to like the importance of, you know, trying to build your own wealth, mostly because I worked for a lot of these pizza shops in the area. So it was a cool experience growing up, just kind of seeing that firsthand and also just living outside of New York City. There was just a lot of exposure there as well. Interesting. So you were kind of exposed at an early age, kind of working in these pizza shops. Were you flipping pizzas? What were you doing there? What, what kind of job did you have? And then what kind of made you view entrepreneurship through that lens? Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't necessarily like look at like the owners and be like, this is what I wanted to do as a kid. But I just kind of saw the hustle of like working closely with these owners and the trials and tribulations that they went through, the angst that they dealt with on an everyday basis. My jobs were you know, pretty standard. I, I was actually a pizza delivery guy for a while and I drove really fast and recklessly. So I was like really good at my job, but we don't have to go further into that. And then outside of that, I did like placing orders for customers and stuff, clean the restaurant, prepared for the next day. A lot of like the roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty kind of jobs, which, you know, I, I just, you know, I respect a lot of it now at this point, having done a lot of that work. Absolutely. And when you look back at your childhood, what were some of the biggest challenges that you overcame as a kid or struggled with as a kid? My parents got divorced at a pretty young age. I think I was like 13. So, you know, kind of dealing with that was really difficult for our family as well as for myself. I, I was kind of viewed, I guess, as like the mediator of the family at that age, which as you imagine, like as a you know, kid going through adolescence. I also, you know, went to a school in a different city too. So I didn't know that many people there necessarily. So there was a lot of like struggle that I dealt with there. I also was, you know, a very good athlete growing up, but I went to a school in a different city and I actually got cut from my first sport ever basketball. So that was pretty difficult as well. And I think like my high school years were, although they're supposed to be very, very formative in a positive way, I guess they were, they weren't very formative for me from that perspective. I just tend to struggle a lot just with all those things kind of compiling on top of each other. So it was tough, but... You mean struggling academically or emotionally because of all the things being cut from the team and then with the divorce, those types of things? Yeah, I mean, yeah, all those things together, honestly. I mean, from an emotional perspective, like it was definitely tough. I mean, you know, my family was separated. You could kind of call it a broken home, if you will. And so, you know, dealing with that was, you know, obviously very difficult. And then getting cut was definitely not a benefit by any means. And then I just like then struggled with my grade. I actually have my SAT score tattooed on me because I did terrible on my SATs. And, you know, I, I went to a college prep school where a lot of my friends were going to Ivy League schools and, and very good colleges. And I felt, for lack of a better term, stupid. I, didn't, I was a smart kid. And it took a while to like really build up the confidence again after dealing with that, especially because I didn't get into college till my very last day of high school. Still remember my guidance counselor coming in and like being incredibly excited for me that I got accepted somewhere. And it was just a small state school in New Jersey that I eventually dropped out of after the first year. It was tough. So you got your SAT score, which sounds like you said it was terrible in your words. It was terrible. You got it tattooed on you? 
Yeah. Why? Sorry, you can't see me, obviously, but I have a lot of tattoos with me. It's just a constant reminder. It didn't mean anything. Yeah, like going to this high school, they always preached. Don't get me wrong. If I didn't go to this high school, St. Peter's Prep, downtown Jersey City, I wouldn't be here today. It definitely truly made me a better person by going there. But at the same time, they very much pushed like getting into a really good college out of high school. And what sticks with me the most is the fact that it doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you finish. And I was able to figure out a way through, you know, just alternative routes that allowed me to go to University of Southern California, USC, which is a phenomenal school. Oh, wow. So you ended up going to school because you said you dropped out, right? So you went to the state school. You were there, I think you said for a year and then you dropped out, but then you ended up going to University of Southern California. Is that what you said? Yeah. So there was a little bit of a gap, a two-year gap in there. So after I dropped out, I moved home and I don't know what happened. There was a bit of a switch though. And I just kind of looked at junior college, community college as a business opportunity. And so I set my schedule so that all my classes were before 8 a.m. and my first semester, I ended up getting a 3.9 GPA. And I don't know how I did pull that off, but it was arguably one of the most pivotal moments in my life because it gave me the confidence to believe that I was capable of being a good student. And so from there, I just tried to build up my resume in school and out. And so I got accepted into a bunch of honor societies because of my GPA. I joined Big Brother, Big Sister. So I was mentor to a 13-year-old kid in downtown Jersey City for two years while I was attending that college. And because I was in these honor societies, I kind of got fast-tracked into a lot of uh, different four-year universities that were, you know, I guess, partnered with these honor societies. And so, you know, I got my associate's degree in business and I ultimately got into University of Miami, University of Northeastern and USC. And I had never been west of the Mississippi at that point. So I figured it was worth taking the shot and a leap of faith and going to Los Angeles to attend USC. Wow. That's a wild story in kind of the, your college story there. <laughs> and with the tattoo, I'm still going back to this tattoo of the SAT because I imagine, I think it will help for context in the story. When did you get that tattoo? Because I don't think it was when you got your SAT score, right? It was. It sounds like it was later when you realized that that score meant nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't get the tattoo till like a couple of years ago. And so that was, you know, after I graduated USC, I got my first like corporate America job. I then ended up leaving that to start my own business doing digital marketing. There was a couple of things in between there that I'm sure we'll get to. But I finally got to a point where I felt confident in who I was and what track I was on for my career. And that's what led me to get it because I was like, again, it, it means absolutely nothing. Yet it played such a profound role in my life for a good three years, four years, where I didn't think I was a smart person. And I ultimately learned that, you know, my intelligence is just different than what I got from that school. Like I'm just more of a street smart, like yeah, common sense, logical Learn thing. From doing... I am like a book smart guy. Yeah. No, I hear you. I dropped out of college too. So I'm did you actually finish the University of Southern California? I did. Yeah, you did. Wow. Long, See, I'm long. impressed. I mean, you actually you went for it. You got the degree. I mean, it sounds like you were you kind of had this hunch on your shoulder. You're like, I'm going to prove everyone wrong or even for yourself, for your own confidence. Absolutely. You probably knew that if you could do that and get your degree, it would help continue to build that confidence and resilience muscle A feeling rejected, feeling like a failure, feeling like you're not smart. All of these things that you're you're saying and then really, when you got that degree, was it everything you had hoped for when you you know, graduated and you held that, I don't even know what it is, the <laughs> certificate of graduation, uh, your bachelor's degree? Were, was you feeling like, wow, this did it cement everything that you had hoped for? I would definitely say so. I mean, I guess I looked at college a little bit 
differently. I mean, not maybe not differently to too many people, but I saw it as just more of a stepping stone. I didn't necessarily go to college with the expectation of whatever my degree was, I was going to end up in that field thereafter. It was more so of just like a sense of accomplishment. I knew I wanted to get my degree. I knew I wanted to get it from a good school. And the fact that I was able to get it from USC on my terms was, it was just another one of those building blocks to ultimately lead to, you know, gaining more confidence. Absolutely. Well, congratulations. That sense of accomplishment, it really goes a long way. I'm sure it's served you in many ways as you've gone through your career. And so you said from there, after graduating, at some point you started your own digital marketing business. What kind of made you want to go into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I kind of leading back to growing up on the East Coast, an important part of this is the fact that Also at that high school, most of my friends that I went to school with, they all came from like the suburbs of New Jersey, pretty wealthy areas for the most part. And a lot of their parents were professionals in like finance on like Wall Street in New York City, for instance. And so it was pretty obvious that a good way to succeed is to go to college, get a business degree, end up working on Wall Street and build a great career there. Right. Mm -hmm. But that also obviously wasn't my trajectory, essentially. And so when I got to USC... I started meeting all these kids that were had all these side hustles. And so my roommate was selling beanies out of his backpack. I had a friend that was selling like exotic t-shirts out of the trunk of his car. And then I, I knew a guy that was making beats and selling them to artists in Hollywood. And so I was immediately fascinated with like these guys' abilities to just go off on their own beaten path and just create something out of nothing. And so it just had me thinking. And I was just like, you know, I, I've like taken the subway into New York City and navigated the streets of you know, all New York City and Brooklyn skateboarding around, like I have the ability to think differently and think like logically. So like, why can't I come up with like an idea that can ultimately be turned from an idea into reality? And so I tried a bunch of different things. One of them was like, this is crazy, but do you remember the movie Hitch with Will Smith? Yeah. He was like the dating consultant. Okay. So I got to USC. What was it? Tinder came out and it was like fascinating, right? Like everybody was on it, like swiping left and right, talking to, you know, different girls, different guys, whatever. And uh, this was 2011, 2012. Yeah. Somewhere right in that area, we would have open conversations with my friends, like about like the conversations they were having. And I, I guess I would just give like relatively good advice. And so one thing led to another, I created an app that was essentially to help people with conversations with whoever they were talking to on Tinder, where they would just like upload a screenshot of their conversation, say they're in a sticking point or whatever. And then they would get like a crowdsourced feedback as to like how to progress the conversation. I never ended up going anywhere, but I was able to convince two kids at UCLA actually to create a iOS prototype for me and an Android prototype for me for free. And so I pretty much got these prototypes and then I shopped them around. I had no idea how to like raise money at the time. So ultimately it didn't go anywhere, but It was really cool for me and from a growth perspective, because I was actually able to turn an idea into something that was tangible and something that you could and essentially could use. That was like my first like entrepreneurial like project, if you will. That's so funny to think about Tinder and swiping right, because in 2013, I swiped to the right and met my husband and it was like my first and last Tinder date. Amazing. (laughs) Yes. I love that. (laughs) I, I don't think we knew about your app though at that time. And we didn't even have time. We like met for first date, like the first time we started talking, we met like two hours later. It was kind of a very instant thing. And so you're saying, so you built this app, you got some friends from school to help code it for free, which is great. And then what ended up happening with this app and what did you do after? Yeah, nothing really like ended up coming to it. I mean, I just didn't know how to raise money. I, I didn't have like a real functioning app. So I couldn't even, the, back then it was like, how many users do you have? And that like kind of indicated the success of like whatever app you were building. 
So I ended up just like moving on. The next thing I got into was I kind of mentioned earlier that I come from a military background. My dad was in the Navy. My sister was in the Navy, grandparents, uncles, you name it. And so there was a time when I, I thought about joining the Navy, but I had started to build up a bit of a, I guess, some success in Los Angeles. And I wanted to like continue to carry that out. And so I decided not to go into the military, but, but I was really fascinated with entrepreneurship, obviously. So I created a company called Original Grit. Grit stands for courage in the face of hardship or danger. And so the, the premise of it was to ultimately create products like hats, bracelets, t-shirts, but then in return, give back to the homeless veterans in Los Angeles. So I created what's called an essential bag. In that essential bag are everyday essentials. So like toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorant, towel, socks, you name it. And I would essentially just go around Los Angeles and I would hand out these bags to homeless veterans. I would ask them for their story. And so anytime somebody then bought a product from my website, they would get a little postcard and that postcard would be a picture of the person holding the essential bag. And it would be a story about how they essentially got to the streets. Yeah. So I did that for like a year and a half while I was working like full-time in corporate America, but I created some awesome partnerships with nonprofits around Los Angeles, one of them being Skid Row Housing Trust. They help transition homeless people into permanent housing. So that was really cool. That ended up not really going anywhere, mostly because I didn't know how to market myself or my products. And so that ultimately led me to digital marketing. Nice. And so obviously digital marketing being a, a core thing, trying to maybe build that original grit business what ended up coming from that? Yeah. So I started as a freelance digital marketer. I had a couple of friends that were in marketing and I just kind of tapped on them, asked them if I could do some free work for them. I got you know some experience doing email marketing, Facebook, Instagram marketing, and even Google AdWords. And around that same time, I took my first solo backpack trip, went to Southeast Asia for about a month. And while I was there, you could probably imagine, you know, kind of bouncing around by yourself. You meet all these different people. Every conversation really starts with who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And I'm Dylan Segley, I'm from Los Angeles, and I'm a quote unquote digital marketer. One thing led to another, I left Thailand with three clients and I decided to open up shop as a digital marketer. And that just started to have like a snowball effect. The following year, I doubled down and I flew to Europe. I did a three month solo backpack trip there. Same thing. I left with a handful of clients. And so I then started just getting a little bit more structured and a little bit more focused in terms of what my niche was. And I landed on performance marketing for e-commerce brands. And so for the next like three years, I just solely did that. I eventually brought on my business partner that I work with today. He kind of ran the operations of our marketing agency. And I was more of like the sales guy, if you will. And that ultimately led us to what we're doing today, which is Chubby Snacks. What was your agency called? Street Logic Media. All right. And so how did you come up with the idea for Chubby Snacks from there? Because here you're, you know, running this media business, right? This marketing agency. So how did you go from, you know, running that to coming up with the idea for Chubby Snacks and like shifting gears? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was pretty crazy. You know, as an agency owner, there was only, I had myself, Brett, and we had one other employee and, you know, there's not much overhead when it comes to agencies. So we were making, you know, more money than we ever did in our entire lives. But we also got very good at what's called like chatbot marketing. I mean, back in like 2018, 2019, it, it, it kind of hit a bit of a, a peak, I guess, in terms of its attractiveness to e-commerce brands. And so we got really good at that. And then ultimately we decided, we got kind of put in a position where we couldn't track our attribution for the work we were doing. And so we created a analytics tool that would help track our work essentially. We got to a point where we were doing really well in marketing. I had just come up with this idea for Chubby Snacks. And we also had like this app that we were building. The reason why we came up with Chubby Snacks is mostly because we were 
you know, focused on, you know, all the greatest things that were happening in the direct consumer e-commerce space. And one of the things we started noticing were all these brands that were popping up that were recreating traditional products with elevated nutritionals and better for you ingredients. I just kind of saw it more as an evolution of like the modern day consumer than I did as just like a trend that was happening at that space and time. And so we just decided that was the, you know, had the best opportunity in terms of like long-term success. Granted, we didn't know anything about food and beverage, but we knew that we were able to figure out a lot of things along the way, uh, especially just like from my experience. And so I figured like, why not just go for the home run and 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 try to do this thing full time? So there's obviously a lot to that, but that's kind of what like led us to going into this. I, I mean, I will say we did some trials and uh, testing before we just decided to go all in. There was a point where I was making these sandwiches in my own kitchen at Marina 41, actually, packaging them up and then like driving around to like Brentwood and Santa Monica to like different soccer tournaments and baseball tournaments and handing them out to kids and parents asking for feedback. That was like the initial days back in like 2019 when we were coming up with the idea for it. That's interesting. So you were coming up with the idea in 2019 and you launched in 2020? Correct. Yeah. So launched the company in June of 2020. I would say like April-ish, May, we we decided to open up a commercial kitchen in LA to start like kind of getting our feet wet in terms of manufacturing and then packaging and some of the logistics stuff as well. But we launched at the end of June of 2020. And then I assume this next question that's going to come up is about Smuckers. And so Smuckers hit us with a cease and desist like in the middle of uh, July. So like less than 30 days into our business. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I saw that Forbes article. Tell us more about you know what that meant for you guys as, as a company and how you navigated that entire situation. Yeah. I mean, it was brutal. I put all my money into this that I made from digital marketing and uh, within 30 days, you know, I was pretty much being told that I was a criminal, if you will. And so... I was riding high, like we were really good at digital marketing. So we were getting some really quick sales through our website and, you know, the wind was immediately blown out of our sale. You know, obviously after the dust settled, we realized that it was a really good thing what was going on, but yeah, it was tough. I mean, I've never experienced anything like that before. So we obviously had to hire like an IP attorney. We had to figure out like what our, our options were and really it was only two options. It was either face them in court or just come up with a new shape. And that's actually what we decided to do. Obviously, it allowed us to obviously rebrand ourselves and reshape ourselves and make ourselves a little bit more Instagrammable and brandable, if you will. And so that took like seven months or so. And then we relaunched with the cloud shape sandwich in February 2021. So why a cloud? 
<laughs> yeah, great question. I guess had I known that, what I knew now in terms of manufacturing and, and scaling manufacturing, I probably would have chose something a little bit easier, like a square, but... So you just couldn't do a circle, right? Is that the whole thing? You couldn't do a circle because the smucker is that... Shape? Yeah, they have like a, a trademark on a circle-shaped sandwich. And so that's ultimately what got us in trouble is the fact that we, you know, just copied their shape. Obviously crazy that they have a pat or a trademark on a, a, a shape, but yeah, it's it's pretty impressive at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, John, my third business partner, he came up with the idea for the cloud and we thought it was a fantastic idea. And then we decided to run with it. And so, you know, we actually, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but like we have automation that's coming into the mix and it's built specifically for our cloud shape sandwich. And so there's some IP associated with that. Obviously we took a page out of the Smucker's book and we trademarked the cloud shape sandwich. So that's pretty cool, I guess, if you will. But yeah, I mean, it really was just to like stand out. And a big part of this is like just the fact that, you know, you walk into a grocery store, there's thousands of brands in there. Like what's going to allow you to stand out amongst the rest? You really need to be memorable, you know, with the name like Chubby Snacks as well as Cloud Shape Sandwich. We think that we've done a really good job at ultimately putting us at like the forefront of, you know, a grocery store in terms of like having more of an iconic brand. So how did you come up with the name Chubby? I feel like 10 years ago, no one could use that name for a, a food company because like, or maybe 15, I don't, you know what I mean? There's like a time I feel like where Chubby for as a name of a food company would probably not be <laughs> if you're going for adults, I guess. Right. But today, obviously, it's a totally different story. And you guys have had su a success with it. So how did you come up with the name Chubby? Yeah. I mean, it really does play into like standing out, right? Like you need to be memorable. And so you hear your name like Chubby Snacks and you're going to remember that. Like it doesn't matter in what capacity, but when you think of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you're either going to think of the Uncrustable or you're going to think about Chubby Snacks. And so, you know, we really just wanted to elicit a response from the consumer. We want you to walk down the grocery store aisle, see us in the freezer or wherever, look at it and be like, what is that? And pick it up. And then when you pick it up, you read our packaging, you flip it over, you see our ingredients and you're like, wow, this is actually a really good product. And it won't make you chubby because it's actually good ingredients. Exactly. And, you know, there's that oxymoronic value associated with it, right? Like, I mean, you know, we have the pioneers in the space, like a, a liquid death, for instance, right? They're selling water in a can and they're called liquid death. Like the fact that they exist is amazing for us because it just ultimately solidifies the fact that you can be loud, you can be a little obnoxious, but at the end of the day, you're, you're going to be memorable and people appreciate that. At the end of the day, we're just having fun. I mean, I can't possibly take myself too seriously. I sell peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a living, right? Like, why not have fun with this? I love how you guys say the only corners you'll ever cut are the crusts. Absolutely. Yeah, I tried to trademark that too. Apparently somebody has that, which is, you know, kudos to them. But no, I mean, like that really is like, you know, a big important part of our brand because, you know, we want to be transparent with the consumer in terms of what it is that we're putting inside our product. And I think we do a pretty good job at that. We try to be vocal about it on LinkedIn, social media about, you know, just some of the changes that we have to do in order to be able to scale efficiently. But at the end of the day, you know, health and wellness is a sacred pillar of ours. And we don't ever want to, you know, lose the trust of our consumer because we're, we're cutting corners. It's just not in the books for us. Well, I've tried the two different ones uh, that you have with the different jams. I love them. I think that they taste really good. And what's really interesting is, you know, it was just eating them regular and as they come, you know, but I looked on the website and the amount of ways, creative ways that you guys have created recipes and ways to eat those, these sandwiches it's hilarious. Like you've got the chubby donut, chubby waffle, and it's all using the same sandwich. 
but it's so creative how you guys have come up with these different things. I mean, the donut alone is like, how do you take a peanut butter jelly sandwich and make it a donut? Oh, it's right here. The recipe is right here. It tells you how to do it. And it's super easy. I find that really fascinating that you guys have been able to take something as simple as a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and make it so simple and easy and healthy, but also creative and fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you. We hired a, a nutritionist, I guess, a recipe formulator, like back early in the days. And we came up with this idea to just like, let's just create some ridiculous recipes and see what works. And she just took the ball and ran with it. She ran really far. She ran really far. There's like chubby sundaes, tortillas, toast crunch cereal. I mean, oh my God. It's really, it's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, it's just like, how can we just have fun with this? Try to be innovative. Think outside the box. You know, it's just, again, we're, we're selling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's like, I mean, in theory, it sounds very simple and obvious and basic, but I mean, you know, we could get into it, but the operations behind it is really what is the differentiator here. I mean, this is the hardest part of the business by far and large, which is, you know, also been a lot of fun too, trying to problem solve. So let's get into it. What do you mean by that operation wise? What have you guys done so differently that's been working for you? Yeah. I mean, no shade to like any of the other products in food and beverage, but you know, a lot of products, you could just go to a co-man and just be like, Hey, I want 50,000 units by the end of the month, like make it happen. They're like, all right, yeah, we'll just throw you right into our operations efficiency and boom, you got it. For us, it, it wasn't like that. You, you can't just go to a co-man around the country and ask him for 50,000 crustless peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It just doesn't exist. I called every you know frozen pizza manufacturer, tortilla manufacturer, empanada manufacturer, everybody you know more or less left us out the door. And so what we ended up doing was opening up a commercial kitchen in downtown Los Angeles. And we threw a bunch of tables in the room and, you know, we figured out how big we wanted the sandwich, the dimensions, whatnot. And we just, you know, started hiring bodies and started making sandwiches. And it was pretty simple. It was like the same way you would make them in your own kitchen. But the way we looked at it was like, you know, we're going to continue to figure out how to optimize. Like, let's figure out how we can get the most output for our input. And so, you know, we laugh and joke and say that we're the Albert Einstein's of peanut butter and jelly manufacturing. But there's no joke. We are like we we've tried a hundred different ways to make these things, and we cracked the code time and time again. And the last time we cracked the code, that ultimately allowed us to you know kind of put our product into a PowerPoint presentation essentially, and I shipped that around to like all these different commands that essentially turned us down originally, and they all said yes that they wanted to bring us on. A lot of it came from you know the direct to consumer success we were having. We were getting some retail attention as well, but we figured out how to simplify the process to a T to allow us to be able to do a lot of what we were able to do without any type of like heavy machinery investments. Interesting. So can you share more about what that means? And are you working with co-manufacturers now or is it all 100% in-house? No, we don't do anything in-house anymore. So I guess I can break it down per ingredient and that, or like per product within our product and then kind of go from there. So our jam is proprietary recipe. We think that's really our biggest differentiator within the entire product. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, kind of matching or I guess bridging the gap between whole food ingredients and food science. We think we did a really good job of making our jam taste like what you would expect from a jam while also, you know, kind of packing it with really good nutritionals. Nut butter is pretty straightforward for the most part. And then bread, the biggest, you know, kind of I guess differentiation with bread is the fact that it performs very well when it's freshly baked. So making sure that we're close to a bakery is really important. But outside of that, uh, you know, when we were doing the self-manufacturing, we just figured out a way to kind of 
create a puzzle around our production by freezing our individual ingredients and then kind of stacking everything up and then, you know, crimping it with a hand crimp. We are no longer doing that now, but it was a really good way for us to be able to like, you know, pretty much like 5X our production overnight, which was awesome. That also gave us the ability to then kind of grow into a co-manufacturer. And now we're about a month out from a fully automated peanut butter and jelly manufacturing machine going live. It's kind of crazy. We could like 15X our production from a monthly production output perspective. So we're incredibly excited about that. It not only you know allows us to increase our capacity, but our margin story increases quite drastically as well. Wow, that's really impressive. And so, I mean, obviously to be able to innovate on this side of the business, it takes a lot of capital, I'm sure, to figure it out and find these machines that can fully automate everything. It just sounds like a huge undertaking. You know, with fundraising, I know that you said you've raised a seed round. You raised $7 million total so far. What has fundraising been like to find investors who were willing to go to bat and kind of invest you know, this direction of the business to reach scale, but do in a way that's just been different from a lot of other brands. I mean, we've been a pretty risky business since day one. There's no doubt. I mean, you know, we talk a little bit about our operations, you know, even the fact that we were self-manufacturing at first, the needed investment into machinery. And that usually like steers investors in the opposite direction, especially venture venture backed funds. And so we've done a really good job at raising from strategic angel investors, as well as some syndicates and family offices, if you will. And a lot of them just really believe in not only our vision, but us as a team, you know, we really try to be as transparent as possible. And we want to show our, our true colors and we are what you expect in terms of what you get. And so I think that really does help us in terms of like showcasing our story, showcasing our vision and kind of bringing that all together. We work incredibly hard to make this business move forward. And I think that shows in a lot of the successes that we've had, as well as, you know, dealing with a lot of the hardships and trials and tribulation. A lot of this comes down to just problem solving. And we constantly showcase our abilities to be good problem solvers. And I think that carries a lot of weight in order to be able to get people to really buy in what it is that we're doing. And so over the years, I mean, it's been tough. I mean, you know, there's been really hard times. There's been some pretty good times in terms of fundraising. But, you know, consistently since we started this business, I've essentially had to raise like anywhere from like 50 to $100,000 a month just to keep the lights on. So it's been tough. No way to deny that at all. So what have been some of the biggest, you know, hardships, challenges in building this business when you think of some of those really tough times where maybe you guys questioned whether or not you could continue? Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast probably to talk about this. I mean, yeah, we're a frozen product, right? So like the logistics side of things is really difficult. When we first started, we were a direct consumer business shipping right to your doorstep. So figuring out how to make sure products were delivered frozen within you know 48 hours, 52 hours was a big challenge. We kind of cracked that code as well. Well, we definitely cracked that code, I should say, not kind of. But I mean, transitioning into retail, you know, we didn't have any retail experience prior to this. John worked for Nike go-to-market strategy for about five years. So he had the most experience. So he kind of took charge on that. And we're doing, you know, I'd like to think we're doing really well in terms of growing through retail and understanding the landscape there. Fundraising obviously has been a massive challenge. And, and a lot of that's just like continuing to showcase our evolved skills, our evolved story, vision, and our uh, continued ability to problem solve, especially under pressure. How do you really, you know, mitigate risk while having to make imperfect decision-making. It's very hard to like put that on paper, but we try to showcase that through our passion in terms of what it is that we're doing. And, you know, obviously a lot of these updates that we provide are are really important in terms of like showcasing those abilities. But, but manufacturing is by far the most difficult part of this. Figuring out how to make these sandwiches at scale has been a challenge 
of all challenges, but it's also our moat around our business. What we we put all of our effort into. It's, it's where we put you know seventy five percent of all the money that we raise into, and it's because we know that if we could get to pass a couple of hurdles, we have the ability to really blow this thing out of the water. And you know that that essentially comes true within the next month. So everything we've worked for over the course of the last three years is all happening right now, essentially. And it takes a lot of perseverance in order to be able to deal with a lot of the bullshit that we had to deal with over the last three years in order to like prove what we're doing is right and the, the way we're doing it is the right way. Absolutely. And not to mention co-founder dynamics, you know, thrown in and then you've got your team and just sales. What retailers are you currently in and how, what was it like getting into retail? Yeah, we're in about close to 1500 doors right now. We'll be in close to like 2500 by the end of the year. It was definitely really difficult getting into, actually, I shouldn't say that. It hasn't been too difficult for us getting into retail. It's been, you know, a lot of the, not necessarily the struggle, but a lot of the attention then goes to figuring out how to move product once you're on the shelf. And I know anybody that's in retail understands that, obviously. And so some of our biggest partners are Whole Foods. We just launched HEB actually this week, which we're really excited about. ShopRite, which is near and dear to our hearts, being that it's a New Jersey-based grocer. I'm from Delaware, so I know ShopRite too. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. My, my parents actually met while working at ShopRite when they were like, yeah, 16 and 18. I'm a big ShopRite fan. We're in Giant Company as well, which is like kind of in that mid-Atlantic, Jersey, New York area as well. Pennsylvania too. Heinen's in the middle of the country. Fresh Time, another big account for us. Wegmans? Are you in Wegmans yet? We're not in Wegmans yet. My Wegmans. mom works there. So speaking of parents working at grocery stores, yeah, she's working there now at Wegmans. She's been there for a few years. We might have to chat after this call about that one. <laughs> <laughs> See if she has uh, Mr. Wegman's uh, any connections. <laughs> yeah, <show> the plug. <laughs> yeah. And then we're in Kroger too. So we launched into QFC like probably about a little bit less than a year ago. And then uh, we just got approvals to expand into a bunch more of their banners. So Fry's, Smith's, Ralph's. So I think we'll be in about like 700 Kroger banners by the end of September. And then we're also launching into Target in the Southwest, about like 100 doors in October. So we got some really big banners that we're bringing in and then also just chipping away at a lot of the natural regionals as well. They're great partners for us as well. And really the focus is just starting to reinforce our efforts in a lot of these markets that we're, we're building up presence in. That's awesome. It sounds like you guys are well on your way, obviously experienced a ton of challenge in the process and you're moving to San Diego in September. So the whole team kind of decided you guys, what made you want to move to San Diego? I know John is in New York, you're in LA. Why did everybody choose San Diego? Yeah. So the goal was always to like get to a point where it made sense for him to move out. And so we could start building a bit more of a company culture. And we're at that point right now. So rather than him just moving to LA, I kind of brought it up to us about like where we want to be. And we all made the decision that San Diego was the best move. Realistically, I, I think for me personally, I've been in LA for 12 years almost. Um, I just want a bit of a change of pace. I want just a little bit of resurgence of uh, of energy. I think San Diego will bring that. And then it's a bit of a smaller market. LA is like, it's an urban sprawl. It's a massive city. There's a lot of saturation in terms of food and beverage. It's a little bit more difficult to stand out here. And so our, our thought process is, you know, San Diego is a bit smaller. It gives us the ability to really do a lot of boots on the ground, guerrilla marketing opportunities where we could really kind of claim San Diego as like our home base. And it's the city that, you know, Chubby Snack is associated with. And I think there's a lot of uh, pride as well as big opportunity for us to be able to kind of use that as a, a good use case case study for potential growth in the future into new markets. 
Real quick about fundraising, I'm curious your thoughts. Who are some of the best investors in the consumer space right now? Who are writing checks and who's adding the most value? No VCs, that's for sure. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, honestly, but <laughs> I mean, any yeah, super angels we should one. know about? <laughs> I don't know if they want me to name, necessarily name drop right now. I, I'm happy to, you know, kind of talk to them. And if there's people that are interested in, you know, getting in touch, I'll, obviously I could do my best to connect dots. But uh, I mean, we definitely have amazing partners. You know, we've, we've raised a pretty decent amount of money at this point from a lot of different people. And, you know, it, it's funny, there's either there's like two different types of people when it comes to investing. It's either, you know, their willingness to write a check and then just kind of stand on the sidelines and let you do your thing. And, you know, they'll be helpful when when you need it. And then there's others that want to obviously get involved. And, you know, I think our cap table is filled with some absolute rock stars that, you know, we are definitely not shy on reaching out and asking for time. And, you know, the coolest part is the fact that like, you know, pretty much on the drop of a dime, I could get on a call with somebody who's incredibly successful and way smarter than I am. And they're willing to just like problem solve with me and my team. And it's just an incredible feeling to have kind of the freedom to be able to just have somebody who is, isn't just like as free as you'd like, and would be willing to just give up time and just, you know, and they just throw some time on our calendar and allow us to, you know, kind of pick their brain about things. Absolutely. And before we wrap up here, just two final questions. What's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are tuning in, listening, or maybe they're in the trenches building their business? And what's next for Chubby Snacks? Great questions. I think like for us, like constantly having our blinders on and paying attention to what it is that we're doing and not really caring about the noise outside is really important. But I think for me, like it's really hard to do this and your chances of winning are incredibly, incredibly low. And it doesn't matter how much success you have those chances of winning are still incredibly low. So what I tell myself every day when I wake up is 5%. I have a 5% chance of winning. And if I have a 5% chance of winning, that means I have a 95% chance of losing. And if I have a 95% chance of losing, that means I have to work my ass off in order to be able to win. And so if I keep that edge, that allows me to keep focus on what's important and not get lost in the minutiae and the noise that's outside of what it is that I'm doing. And so if that's good advice, then I, I hope it is because it does really it helps me a lot. I jump out of bed at you know 5.45 in the morning. I, I do my workout and I get my ass into the office. And a lot of that is because I just constantly remind myself that I have a 5% chance of winning. That's hilarious. Or you're saying I have 95% chance I might lose. I might not be motivated by that personally, but <laughs> I think <laughs> I mean, I'm like the optimist. I've got to flip the numbers and be like, I've got a 95% chance I'm winning. So I better keep going, going, going. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it depends who you are. Everybody's so different, right? No, totally. It works really well for me. So I mean, you know, that's, I guess that advice works well for me. So I guess that's all I could say. It probably works for a lot of other listeners that are tuning in and they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I need to tell myself in the morning, you know? And then there's people like me, they're like, oof, I don't know if that's going to motivate me to get up. So what's next for Chubby Snacks? What can we see next? Target. Last year, we did a really cool collab with TBH where we did a chocolate hazelnut uh, and peanut butter sandwich. The goal is to roll that out at retail because a lot of customers want it back. A lot of retailers want it in. And so we're going to, we're hoping to launch the chocolate hazelnut and peanut butter sandwich like early next year in retail. And then outside of that, you know, we're going to do a lot of different uh, collabs, different brands and different flavors that we're going to launch exclusively direct to consumer. So kind of keep an eye out, I guess. We have like a pretty cool one that's coming up in the year that we're really excited about. 
That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see all the creative things that you guys do. You have a very, you know, creative lens. So it's fun to see where this is going and the different collaborations you could do in the future. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing your awesome story personally and professionally and uh, your story in building Chubby Snacks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.